Hello, everybody. It is time uh, to to hear the sermon that is about to come. Pastor Allen is going to do the second half as far as John chapter 6 goes, and I'm really excited about it. Uh, but following the sermon, hang out here after because Pastor Allen and Pastor Dudley and I are going to be hanging out to, to talk about the sermon and the things that are inspired by it. So here it is. Hey, Christ community, it's really good to be with you today, be a part of your spiritual journey, my spiritual journey. We're in this together. So a few weeks ago, our dishwasher went out and we were tired of paying $110 for a repairman to come out and not fix it. Uh, so we started shopping for a new dishwasher. And after looking online, we narrowed it down to two options at Lowe's. We had it narrowed down to two. And so before making a decision in the store, I told Raylene, hey, let's go home and let's look at some of the reviews of both of these. Both of them had like 4.6 stars out of five. So they were both quality dishwashers, but I thought it'd be good to look at these reviews. And so, so we start reading these reviews. I mean, there are thousands of five-star reviews, just tons of great reviews, but there was also this small percentage, like 3% of not so great reviews. You know, do not buy this dishwasher. This is a piece of junk. You know, the parts are terrible. Customer service is horrible. So as Raylene and I are reading these reviews, we I just noticed, we both noticed our anxiety level rising, this panicked feeling. Maybe we shouldn't buy either of these, but no other dishwasher got any better ratings. And honestly, it was sort of debilitating. The excitement about purchasing a new dishwasher was swallowed up in this anxiety of possibly making a mistake and regretting it for years. You know? And that experience was a fresh reminder to me that we live in a world that is filled with anxiety. The CDC recently reported that since COVID, anxiety levels have tripled. That is astounding and yet not surprising because anxiety feeds on the idea of what if right? What if the stock market collapses? What if this legislation goes through? What if I get on that plane and have a panic attack? What if I get cancer? And the problem is these, these what ifs are infinite from dishwasher purchases to economic demise. And they often have a debilitating impact on our lives. We start making decisions based on these perceived threats and, and the world, our world becomes smaller and smaller. And so in the midst of all of this anxiety, what would Jesus want to say to us? We are journeying together through the book of John, and we come to a passage in which Jesus speaks to some of the things that stir anxiety in our own hearts. So if you have your Bible, feel free to turn to John chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. And let me just acknowledge that people's experience of anxiety is on a continuum. There is not a one-size-fits-all solution. For some, our battle with anxiety involves therapy and perhaps medications, which is totally fine. But today, I just want to point out, today we're really talking about a more common, low-grade experience of anxiety and what Jesus might want to say to us in these experiences. <clears throat> so in this passage in John chapter 6, there are three anxiety-producing questions that Jesus speaks into. The first anxiety-producing question that we often find ourselves asking is this, am I going to be okay Am I going to be okay? What if something horrible happens? What if I get a cancer diagnosis? What if a loved one dies? What if? And these are very real questions that we are bombarded by on an hourly basis. So what might Jesus want to say to us? Well, look with me at verse 16. I said earlier, verse 6, it's actually verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. So notice how John describes the situation. He, he tells us, it's kind of poetic here, but it's literal. He tells us that it's dark and that Jesus is not with them. He's using vivid language to describe not only a physical reality, but an emotional reality. I mean, these guys are in trouble. They're in the middle of a huge lake in the midst of a storm, it's dark, strong winds, rough waters are creating, you know, are crashing against their boat. Again, it's, it's, it's nighttime, so it's dark. I mean, isn't that how storms in our lives feel? They hit suddenly, and we find ourselves thrust into darkness, feeling alone. 
Life, life is, is going fine. And then we hear the words, you have Alzheimer's or your position is being terminated or your request for admission is denied or your son has autism or I really need to move on from this relationship. And in that moment, everything goes dark you lose your equilibrium. You wonder, am I going to be okay? Is my child going to be okay? And these, these what-ifs relentlessly bombard our brain. We can't sleep. We can't stop thinking about what might happen. And so these disciples are in the midst of a storm when something amazing happens. Look at verse 19. When, when they had rowed about three or four miles, <clears throat> they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. And they were frightened, but he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. So suddenly in the midst of the storm, they see Jesus walking on the water towards their boat and they freak out. But Jesus gets closer and says to them, it's me, don't be afraid. See, notice what he's offering them in the midst of the storm, his presence his presence. He comes out to meet them in the midst of this storm. And he does so in a miraculous way by walking on water. Now, I know for our modern day minds, this may seem like a stretch, but John was there. He saw it happen. He and the other disciples were eyewitnesses to this. And if, if look, if we believe in a God who created the universe, is it that much of a stretch to believe that this God can temporarily suspend the laws of nature in a miraculous way? John wants us to know that Jesus is Lord of creation and that he meets us in our storm. He comes to us and he offers us his presence. Okay, so the disciples receive him into the boat. They immediately reach the shore where they were heading. Now, this is the second miracle that happens here. The moment Jesus enters the boat, they arrive at their destination. So Jesus not only has this storm under his control, he also has the destination under his hand. Look, I know in my own life, when a storm hits, it is really hard to see any positive destination. But that's okay because Jesus is with me and he will be with me in the journey. When our son Joshua was born and we realized he had problems, we were thrust into this place of emotional darkness and desperation. That, that was 21 years ago. And the, the destination we were wanting, i.e. complete healing, isn't the destination we find ourselves in. But we have experienced the presence of Jesus throughout. And we have seen his hand at work in so many beautiful ways because of this storm. When a storm hits and we begin to wonder, am I going to be okay? Is this going to be okay? Is my child going to be okay? What Jesus offers us in that moment is his presence. He doesn't show us the destination. He just lets us know that he is with us throughout the journey. We can lean on him. We can trust him. I was talking with a friend of mine who told me about a head injury that his child experienced at the age of two. And at one point, they were in the hospital. This little boy, two-year-old, he began having seizures. And the doctors just start yelling, code blue, nurses, code blue, over the intercom, all that. People rush into the room, and then they just rush the child, their child into surgery. And my friend and his wife were just there in that hospital room waiting for like five hours, not knowing if their son would even live. And my friend told me in that moment, he realized that all he had was Jesus. All he had was Jesus. And so he said to him, whatever happens to my son, I will love you. And, and, he, and he had this, he told me he had this profound sense of Jesus being there. Now, miraculously, his son lived and has no brain damage. But even if that hadn't been the outcome, my, my friend had come to this place in his heart of leaning into the presence of Jesus, no matter what, leaning into the presence of Jesus. That's what Jesus offers us in our anxiety-ridden storms. He offers us his presence. 
Well, the second anxiety-producing question that we often battle is this, will I have enough? Will I have enough? Will I have enough money? Will I have enough savings? Will I have enough food? These questions can do a number on our experience of peace. This, this threat of lack stirs in us all sorts of panic and anxiety, which is exactly what we see happening next in this passage. Verse 22, the next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Okay, so the crowds that were there the day before when Jesus fed the 5,000, those crowds come back to that place the next day and they are desperately looking for him. You can feel the, the intensity, the panic in the way John describes this. I mean, they jump into several boats and they don't know where people are and you know, there's an intensity. And then when they get there, they ask Jesus kind of a weird question. When did you get here? You know, all of this feels really desperate, feels really panicky. And Jesus sees that and he exposes the root cause of their anxiety. Verse 26, Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Okay, notice what Jesus does here. He exposes their hearts. Beneath every anxiety we experience, there's usually, there's a root beneath that. And that's what he's doing here. He exposes their hearts. He exposes their motives. See, what drove them to seek Jesus was not a spiritual desire. It's not a, you know, a earnest seeking of Jesus the Savior. No, what, what drove them to seek Jesus was a desire for free food, right? This guy's not only a prophet, he has a food truck with free meals. I mean, no wonder they desperately are searching for him. They're looking for physical provision. That's their focus. And look, when that is our focus, when we are driven by a fear of lack, we often will feel this pressure, this anxiety. Will I have enough? What do I need to do to make sure I have enough? And so what Jesus does here is really powerful. He speaks to their hearts. He says, look, don't focus on food that spoils. I want you to focus on the spiritual food that I provide, the food that brings genuine life. And see what, what Jesus offers them and us in the midst of our anxiety about have, not having enough is his provision, his provision. Jesus is saying, look, you are worried and anxious about not having enough food, but I want you to know I am what you need. I am what you need. Now they still don't get it. And so Jesus continues to drive this point home. Look at verse 30. So they ask him, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, Always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Now in that culture, bread was the main sustenance in terms of food. They didn't have grocery stores. You know, they didn't have Walmart, Costco or whatever with thousands of options. They had bread. And without bread, they would not eat. So when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he is saying, I am what your soul truly needs. I am what your soul is hungry for. Focus your heart, focus your attention on me. Now, look, we see this principle in other places in the teaching of Jesus. For instance, one of the most powerful is, is, is in chapter six of the book of Matthew. So Jesus, after he, he spends this time urging his followers, don't worry about what you'll eat and drink. And don't, don't worry. The world's running after these things. They're freaking out about it, but don't worry about not having enough. He says that, don't worry about that. And then at the end of this passage, he says this, 
But instead of worrying and all that, but seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. See, there's the principle that Jesus is going after here. And it all has to do with what we are seeking. In other words, what we are focusing on. When we are focused on secondary things, not having food or clothing or money, we're going to struggle with anxiety. We're going to feel panicked and, and, and pressured. But see, Jesus gives us an alternative. Seek first the kingdom. In other words, focus on Jesus. Focus on his kingdom. Make Jesus your primary pursuit. So we have primary and we have secondary. And so when we do that, Jesus says, everything will be provided. But when we get the off, when we focus on the secondary things, it all gets messed up. I love how C.S. Lewis um, articulated this principle. He writes this, put first things first, i.e. the primary thing, put first things first and second things are thrown in. But if you put second things first, you will lose both first and second things. Man, that's exactly right. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. If we set our heart on temporal things, we will start to feel panicky. Am I gonna have enough? But when we set our heart on him, as the bread of life, as the one who provides what we truly need, then he takes care of everything else. So the question is, what are we seeking, right? What is our focus? This is a powerful question to ask whenever we are battling anxiety. The question is, what am I focusing on? In this moment, what, what, am I focusing on what I've got to do to fix this and what if that and what if that? Or am I focusing on God? I mean, that reality is a crucial, that, 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 that really is a crucial question here. It, it's, it's fascinating how this question actually comes to the surface in the midst of this conversation in John 7. Check this out, verse 28. Then they ask him, what must we do to do the works that God requires? That's a really important question that shows us that the people there, they're wrestling with what Jesus is saying. They're, they're basically asking, how do we please God? If what you're saying is true, how do we please God? How do we put him in this primary place? And notice how Jesus answers their question. Verse, verse 29, Jesus answered, the work, they're, they're saying, how do we, how, what, was, what must we do to do the work God requires? Here's what Jesus answers. The work of God is this to believe in the one he has sent. Do you see what Jesus is saying? They're asking, what work must we do to earn God's favor? And Jesus says, it's not about your work. It's about your faith. It's not about your work. It's about your faith. That's what God is looking for. That's what opens the door to us experiencing his favor and his love. It's our willingness to trust him. That that's what puts the primary thing in the primary place in our hearts. It is intentionally, it is us intentionally looking to Jesus in faith, placing our trust in him. And look, Jesus is not just talking about a one-time decision. Oh yeah, I placed my trust in Jesus 25 years ago. He's not talking about just a one-time thing. He's talking about a lifestyle the entire Bible is talking about this, that Jesus is inviting us to live by faith. That's the gospel, right? We live by faith. We trust him for uh, uh, what our hearts ultimately need and let him take care of the rest. Seek first the kingdom and all these things, all these other things will be added to you. Get the primary thing in the primary place. And all these other things are going to be added. They're going to be taken care of. In other words, set your heart, set your focus on, on who Jesus is as the bread of life and let him take care of the rest. So in the midst of our anxiety about not having enough, Jesus invites us to shift our focus from the temporal to the eternal, from the secondary to the ultimate. And when we do that, no matter how many times a day we have to do that, or we need to do that, shifting our focus, no matter how many times we do that, Jesus makes the same promise. He will provide what we need. He is enough. I mean, here, here's something that I do all the time when I'm feeling anxiety about not having enough, not being enough or whatever. I like to intentionally choose 
to focus my mind on something like Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. In other words, in him, I have everything I need. See, I'm discovering that anxiety is always rooted in what I happen to be focusing on in that particular moment, what I happen to be thinking about. So what if rather than focusing on what, if I don't have enough, we instead chose to focus on our good shepherd, Jesus, who is the bread of life and who promises to provide what we need? What if we choose to focus on and trust him? Well, a third anxiety-producing question we wrestle with often is, is my future secure? Right? This is a huge anxiety producer for so many people. And the reason is because we don't know what the future holds. A few weeks ago, there was a traffic accident um, that took the lives of a pastor and his wife who served a church in Windsor. I mean, just a horrible tragedy. I was talking with someone the other day whose life was completely upended by the results from a blood test that, that revealed the presence of cancer. I mean, we've, we've just been through a pandemic that claimed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. <clears throat> I mean, I'm, look, maybe it's the fact that I'm getting older, but the reality of death just feels more and more real to me. I mean, the most recent, recent statistics on this are not good. The latest statistics reveal that on average, one out of one dies. Uh, death is inevitable for all of us. And we don't like to think about that, do we? Especially in our culture. We don't like to think about death. We don't like to hang out in cemeteries. We don't like to think about the reality of our own death. So what do we do? We just keep busy. All do all is just keep busy and don't think about all that stuff. But then when a tragedy happens, when a friend dies, when a diagnosis occurs or whatever, and we're thrust into this place of realizing our own mortality, that can produce some significant anxiety in our hearts. Well, Jesus addresses this in the next verses. After, after declaring himself to be the bread of life, he then says in verse 35, whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All those the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. Now, this particular passage has stirred up quite a bit of discussion over the centuries about how salvation happens. On one side are the Calvinists who assert that God has chosen from the foundation of the world who will be saved and who will not be saved. And on the other side are the Arminians who assert that salvation is determined by the free will of every, uh, each and every individual. Now, what's fascinating in this passage is that Jesus seems to assert both. So he speaks of God the Father being the one who gives people to Jesus, which seems to indicate salvation is God's choosing. But then Jesus also asserts the fact that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life, which places the onus on each individual person. So here's my thought. If Jesus didn't feel the need to choose one side or the other, maybe we shouldn't either. Um, Jesus is continually urging people to respond, to choose to believe, to place their faith in him. And that is definitely true here in this passage where he is specifically challenging these unbelieving Jews to place their faith in him. Notice Jesus doesn't say to them, hey, only some of you are gonna be given to me by my father. So if that's not you, I'm really sorry about that, tough luck. No, he doesn't say that. What he says is, I am the bread of life, believe in me. And if you do believe in me, I will never drive you away. All right, so what does this mean to us in terms of our anxiety regarding the future? Well, I love the language Jesus uses here about salvation. I mean, look at this. Jesus specifically says to us in this passage, if you've placed your trust in me, <clears throat> I'm never gonna turn away from you. I am never going to lose you. Even when you breathe your last breath on earth, 
I've got you. I've got this. I will raise you up on the last day. You will experience a resurrection to new life. Jesus is saying, this is my Father's will, and I am going to make sure this happens. You can trust me. Not even death itself is going to keep me from keeping this promise to you. So in the midst of our anxiety about the future beyond this life, Jesus offers us his protection. That's the kind of language he's using here. I will not lose you. I will not cast you out. I will protect you. You are secure in me. Over and over again, Jesus makes this promise to us. I will raise you up. I will give you eternal life. Death is not the end. There is life beyond the grave. Will you trust me? See, that's the ultimate antidote for anxiety, isn't it? When our mind is filled with these anxiety-producing questions, will I be okay? Will I have enough? Is my future secure? In that place, in those feelings of anxiety, Jesus offers us his presence, his provision, his protection. And he continually asks us, will you trust me? See, what, what I've learned in my own life and my own battle with anxiety is that this question, will you trust me? This question is not a quick fix question. And it's not an intellectual question of me <clears throat> trying to articulate the right answer. No, it, it is a heart question. It is a soul question. And what I mean by that is this is a question that requires me to slow down and to tune into my heart and to acknowledge the anxiety that I'm feeling. And man, friends, this is so counterintuitive. Counterintuitive. When we feel anxiety, our instinctive response is to stuff it, to, to fight it, to resist it, right? Or to beat ourselves up over it. But, but rarely are any of those responses helpful. A lot of research today is revealing that our efforts to try and resist unpleasant thoughts. Those efforts to resist unpleasant thoughts actually reinforce the very thoughts we're trying to suppress. And, and neurologically, what happens, it actually creates a, a bigger neurochemical response in our brain. So rather than trying to resist or suppress our anxiety, what can be most helpful is to acknowledge our anxiety and then to simply welcome Jesus into that place. See, back to the story of the storm we looked at a few minutes ago. John doesn't tell us that Jesus got in the boat and yelled at the disciples for not trusting him more. No, what Jesus says is, it's me. I'm here. Don't be afraid. And remember what John says that the disciples did right after that? Look at this, verse 21. Then they were willing to take him into the boat. That's the key a willingness to acknowledge our anxiety and then to welcome Jesus into that place, into the what-ifs, into the uncertainty, into the insecurity about our future. In that place, Jesus can, can perhaps reveal to us a deeper root to our anxiety, something that maybe he wants to speak into. See, what we're, what we're, what we're doing is that we are letting him be the bread of life to us as we trust him in the anxiety we feel. Now, look, we may have to do this multiple times a day or multiple times a night. That's okay. Every moment of anxiety is an invitation to look afresh to Jesus and to lean into his presence, to lean into his provision, to lean in to his protection. Let's pray. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to take these things that we've been learning and would you apply them to our hearts right now? So as you are quieting your heart here, those of you who are watching, as you're quieting your heart, just invite you to quiet your heart as we're being just entering into prayer here. I want you to I want you to take a moment and imagine yourself in this story. So imagine that you are in that you're in the boat, you are in a storm. 
And what word would you use to describe this storm? What, what are you feeling anxious about? Remember, our attempts to suppress our anxiety or resist our anxiety are not helpful. So Jesus invites us to acknowledge it. So that's what we're doing here. We're just acknowledging the storm. Okay, so now I want you to imagine that you see someone walking on the water toward the boat and you realize it's Jesus and he says to you, it's me. Don't be afraid. And so imagine that you welcome him into the boat to be with you. you your focus is now not on the wind and waves. Your focus is on him. So as you're focusing on him, what does Jesus want to say to you in that place? How does he see this situation? How does he see you in this situation? What does he want to say to you? So Jesus, would you help us in the midst of our anxiety that maybe happens multiple times a day or whatever, would you help us fix our eyes on you and to hear what you're saying to us? Yeah, we pray for that, God, that we could welcome you into our anxious thoughts. And for some of you, I just want to encourage you, if you're battling alone with anxiety, man, what would it look like for you to invite someone else into the struggle with you? Maybe your parents or a sp- your spouse or a friend or a counselor so that you're not alone in this journey. And feel free to reach out to our church if you would like to meet with someone and we could just help you in that place, in a pathway forward. So God, thank you for being with us. Jesus, thank you for being with us in our anxiety and our circumstances that produce anxiety in us. And we pray that we would walk in your peace as we focus our hearts and our minds on you and who you are. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, everybody. It is time for us to talk about Alan's sermon, talk about the anxiety topic. So, Are you feeling a little anxious, KJ? <laughs> no, I'm actually excited about oh, good. these things to, to uncover and to talk about. But before um, diving in to the things that have been talked about, how did it come about that you uh, kind of picked this, the overarching theme as far as being anxiety? Yeah. Let me, let me interject one thing oh. related to that before yeah. you jump in. I think it's helpful for us and for people that are listening to, to see, how do I go from that passage I'm reading to something that's applicable for my life, like you have done with the theme of yeah. anxiety? That's good. Yeah. I mean, it's, this was one of those when it comes, um, it's like, oh, thank you, Lord. Because um, it's, a, it's a passage that initially didn't feel like there were a lot of connections between the storm and then the people wanting food. And then he starts talking about salvation. You know what I mean? It was like, it just felt disconnected. But as you know, as communicators, we're always, that's the gold is when we can understand what's going on in that passage and then find a point of connection to that. And so I'm not sure how it was just in thinking about it. Probably I was driving somewhere. Just I like to just think about the passage and that connection. Obviously, the storm was obvious, you know. Mm -hmm. But then realizing these people are panicked 
they want food. They're, they're focused on that. And suddenly it was like, well, I have enough. And, you know, so these questions began to surface like that's, that's actually at the root of, of um, kind of what's going on, what he's addressing. Now I will say that, I mean, this, this is the, the challenge as a communicator, but it's not like this passage is a, is directly about anxiety. Right. And so that's where you've mentioned a number of times with John, there are so many lenses, so many layers you can look through. And yeah, this is really true. the way it is, I think, with a lot of scripture. Right. You know, we're taught in seminary. You look, you study the passage. What is the author trying to say? But then there are different lenses you, once you have that, there are different lenses you look at. Yeah. And you can apply it in different ways. And yep. so I have no idea if anyone's ever preached that passage uh, from a perspective of anxiety, exactly. right. you know. Right. But that's really what connected with me and, um, and I think connects with our culture and our society where we're at today. But that was the passage that um, looking through that lens enabled that passage to kind of come alive in a, a, a different way. Yeah, I'm glad it, it kind of brought you to that space because um, so the passage so it's like a huge chaotic mm -hmm. chunk it is and I'm just like caught in there I'm like so who are these people because Jesus is talking to these people as if he's been talking t to them um, mm -hmm. so are they the same people who had been a part of the feeding of the 5,000 uh, yeah, they are. I mean, it they seems are, like yeah. it. Because it, they're the ones, they got that, that, fed that, that, that the they day got before. Food and they're following him because he fed them. Exactly. So it's a crowd of people. These are not religious leaders. Right. This mm -hmm. is a crowd. Nor this the is disciples. People. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This it's is a crowd. a crowd of people. They're physically hungry. They're trying to figure this Jesus guy out, you know, and he's talking in this metaphor, bread of life and all that, that's challenging them. But it's not, it's... It's confrontive a little bit because he calls them on, hey, you're, see you're really seeking food. But it's not confrontive in the way he's been with the religious leaders. Right. You know, that's more of a, they're, they're, right. it's a conflict. A conflict. Here he's yeah. just really, it's the crowd and he's calling them to something deeper. So yeah. they got fed by him the day before. Now he's calling them to something deeper, seems to me. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it kind of was like, I almost like go to the spot of had the feeding of the 5,000 been him setting the table for mm. the conversation to happen yeah. the second day. I think so. Man, that's cool. I haven't yeah, ever really is. seen that before. And so I was just like. Yeah, it's almost it's just the way Jesus, I think, deals with us. He Where we're at, and then he takes us a little deeper. Where they were at the day before, they were hungry. This miracle happens. And then they start seeking him. So he's like, oh, okay, if you're seeking me, let's go a little deeper now and let's talk about what that really meant and oh, the bread it. that I'm offering, you know. And so, yeah, that's kind of a cool. And so, so is it possible, like, to almost say, like, some days to encounter Jesus, he's going to feed you bread. Mm. And then some days he's going to hold the bread back and say, no. Mm. And then some <laughs> days, like, and then some days he. He's waiting for you to go to the other side of the lake to find him, to look yeah, for him. Yeah. And yeah, there's, a, uh -huh. there's that image there that I think is, they were really s pursuing him in a... Uh -huh. Back and forth over the sea, <laughs> too. <laughs> like, they followed him across the sea, then they followed him again. Uh, yeah, realizing he wasn't there, He's the disciples there. weren't there. And then they're like, how did you get here? <laughs> you <know? laughs> exactly. Like, hey, wait a second. <laughs> yeah, when did you get here? Yeah, yeah it's yeah. pretty interesting, so, yeah. Um, yeah, that's cool because I think what you're saying, Dudley, is true. There was a there was a seeking, but even Jesus acknowledges they're seeking. Their motives weren't right. pure. Right, they were really seeking him for what they could get. But Jesus takes that, you know, and and invites them into something deeper. And that's probably what, it's like, better than not too. seeking well, him exactly. at all. Exactly. So even when we're we're seeking him, maybe yeah, we're seeking his hand and we're what he can do for us, but. He invite he doesn't rebuke us for that. He yeah. just invites us to realize, hey, what you're really sure you can pray about that job or whatever. But what you're really 
thirsty yeah. for is uh, this, you know, is me. So, so that's, that's pretty cool. You, you made it explicit when you got to um, the passage in Matthew six thirty three, where yep. Jesus says, seek first exactly. the kingdom of God and all these other things will be given to you, the food that you're seeking and yep. the shelter and so on. So, mm-hmm. I mean, Jesus is like, very subtle at times and then very explicit at times mm-hmm. and that's he's such a great teacher <laughs> well it's yeah it's just like he's not he's just not he's not satisfied with us just seeking him for physical things yeah, he does provide but like he's not that. sad he doesn't want our relationship to only be about that and right. so any way he can draw us into Matthew 6:33 inviting us to Mm-hmm. A deeper level of seeking him first. I think that's what he's that's what he's getting oh, at right. here. Yeah. Well, I was also thinking about these disciples. Um, they're on the boat, you know, and you, they're afraid of everything going. I mean, their anxiety level is going up because when you're in a boat in the middle of a storm, all you want to do is get on land and get your, you know, <laughs> get your legs underneath. Yep. Them. Um, and he shows up. And that whole image right there of the presence of Jesus in the middle of our anxiety, I think, is very, very helpful and pl- applicable. Yeah, so it really he struck shows me up. That he go right. He goes to them. He he goes yeah. to the storm. Yeah, you know that was that was eye opening to me. Right. Um, that he, I think, he's willing to obviously move towards us mm. in the midst of the storms we feel. It's and, not, hey, I'm yeah. over here, and come on, swim harder so that you can get through that. He's like, no, he moves right to where they were. Yeah, and I, the there was an interesting. Two of us, yeah, okay, you yeah. go ahead. You oh, well, there was a. <laughs> we were we were talking a little bit and thinking about when when he when he comes to the boat, they're willing to receive him into the boat. That's what John says. Yeah, but it doesn't say he actually got into the boat. It's like their mindset is still, if you want to be safe, Jesus, get, get into in the, the boat. boat. But mm. he doesn't get in the boat. Like, he doesn't he's get in the boat. <laughs> There in the storm, he's comfortable in the chaos, and, and like, yeah. but people are like, "Come here, I'll protect you," or "Come here, it'll be safe." I didn't see it that way. No, no. okay. Explain. I see okay. that when he says, "I mean, I think the last line there," and he they received him into the boat, right? Yeah. And uh, so it just seems to me that they did. Maybe it's a different translation. Yeah, it, I don't know. I just I saw willing to receive to it, him. Like they were Apparently, and then it says they were right on land. land. They were. They were. So as then, soon oh. as they asked him to come in, oh, they found they, they were on land. There. They were at the land. Well, I don't know how he would have got there running by the boat. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where <laughs> how close they were. But so the thing I was I'm telling Dudley, I was telling Dudley, here's how I see it in my mind. There's a big storm. There's tons of fog. The boat is going crazy, and people are freaking out. And there's Jesus. But you really can't see anything because of the fog. And there's this conversation that's happening, and they invite him in. And then at that point, they, get they hit shore. That's interesting. Or something like that. I just, yeah, I that's know. very interesting. Because you're right. I think I just read that they were willing to receive him into the boat. And they did. But John technically doesn't say that. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. So uh, I have a question for you. Oh, no. Yes. I don't know if you noticed when John described, this is the passage you preached on the day before, or last, yeah, week, last week, when he describes that, he says something about Jesus gave thanks. Did yep. you notice that? I did. So what do you think about that? It's, um, it's so are you talking about the context there at at sea? No, what I'm talking about is when yeah, John know. is describing. Um, let me pull it up here. When John is describing the uh, maybe easier just on my iPad. Yep. When he's describing the the crowds. Um, and, and what's happening there. So it's, this is after the storm um, and the miracle there. Uh-huh. It says, um, Then some boats from Tiberias land on the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given, given thanks. thanks. Yep. And once the crowd realized that neither, so it's just in the, it's thrown in the middle of this flurry of the crowd, mm-hmm. frantically trying yeah, to find him. But I it's so that. interesting to me how John remembers the feeding of the 5,000 as being. In the context of having peop- given thanks. Right. The people right. had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Yeah. It's kind of like he's constantly pointing there. And um, <laughs> the. Um, 
th there's a whole other like sermon here, but the the breaking of bread and giving thanks, it, it, so is this J Jewish practice uh, that is called Kiddush, that means to keep holy. And so it's the things to come, there's holiness about to come. And like, so mm. the, the idea of the Sabbath, to honor the Sabbath and to keep it holy. Um, so the Jews on Friday night, so as the sun's going down, they break bread, they, they give, give thanks. thanks. And so it's like to consecrate the thing that is to come. Uh, That's so, interesting. So it isn't I keep it holy by just setting it apart and do things differently. Um, so there's a bunch of, as far as how John will talk about bread and the giving thanks and this idea of keeping it holy and the Sabbath. Mm. So, yeah. That's interesting. So you're saying, yeah, John is just, he's subtly but highlighting that the sacredness, because it's not, hey, don't forget to say grace before no, a meal. No, 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 <laughs> he's no, not doing no, that. He's, no. It's something much deeper. Yeah, he's circling this whole thing. And then so even how he brings back the idea of prophet and the bread from heaven. Moses. And Moses. So he is like truly unpacking the feeding of the 5,000 all over again. He's like spelling it out. Yep. Yeah, you're right. Because um, the people do ask our ancestor about our ancestors, but he's the one that brings up Moses. They didn't really yeah. bring up Moses, mm -hmm. but he specifically did. Right. Um, he, yeah, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven. And Jesus is saying that he is not Moses, that he is God. Yeah. You know, he's kind of correcting a little bit of yeah. their interpretation of what yeah. happened. And so then going back again a, a couple sermons ago to that John 5 passage about right. people forgetting the prophet Moses, Moses and like he is being talked about a whole bunch in chapter 6. He is. So as if he's trying to show the people who actually sustained them during the time in the desert. It was God. It, it was Jesus. It wasn't Moses. Right? <laughs> it was like exactly. that. It's like it's me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. That's right, so cool. Right after that, he, he does say, I am the bread of life who comes down. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Yeah. So there's that sense of they followed him because of the food he would exactly. get. But they didn't get it. They no. didn't realize the identity of the one that gave them the food. Yeah. Well, just like they didn't recognize the identity of who gave the people of Israel, the food back at the time of the Exodus. Yeah. Right. That was more so about Moses than about God himself or right. Jesus. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Seems to be a continual theme because then we're looking at chapter 7. I've been working on that message a little bit. And there's still total confusion about who Jesus is. Yeah. How? I don't know. In Jerusalem, <laughs> they're all, is he this? He's good. He's bad. He's demon. I mean, it's just all this buzz in Jerusalem about who he is. But at the same time, you got to think about the geography. And our, exactly. There's these whole other people groups who haven't experienced him. Yeah, that's and, really important. And he hasn't been back in the holy city since he healed the guy who was paralyzed. Mm -hmm. And the time before that, he turned over the tables in the temple. So the only th thing that those people have seen are he t turned over the <coughs> tables and he broke the Torah on the Sabbath, Sabbath by healing the paralyzed. And then he was gone. Yeah, which is fascinating because mm -hmm. then from chapter 7 on, it's pretty much in Jerusalem. Yep. It's at three festivals in Jerusalem. And so while Matthew, Mark, and Luke are focused more on the ministry in Galilee, yep. John just focuses the last six months on what's happening in Jerusalem, yep. which is fascinating. That is cool. So, again, it gives us the idea of how to mesh these to the Synoptic Gospels with John's version. He's just focusing on a different locale. Mm -hmm. Which is crazy that by chapter seven we're already yeah, in Josh, it, but we're already in the last it, it, six it's months. At the end, but he just unpacks it right. really the, deeply. Exactly, you have him washing the, the feet, and then you have the whole um, Olivet discourse. The yeah. you know John fourteen, fifteen, and sixteen, and then you have the prayer. I mean, there's 
tons. It just slows yeah. down yeah. even the last week right. Right. Um, for John. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, all right, so I have to <laughs> bring up, so as far as the other Gospels go, and here at the end of chapter 6, something that John does not talk about during this big st- 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 storm that happens mm-hmm. kind of is the thing that the other Gospels, they actually focus mm-hmm. on. It's the idea that Peter gets out of the, the boat. boat. Yep. Peter isn't even brought up here at all. So, so so, from the, the, the idea of John, he's intentionally holding something back or he's, he isn't focusing on this. Yeah, I don't. I, mean, like, yeah, I just think that's interesting. Well, it like, is that, interesting. That's a huge part of that story. Well, typically, it, it is, and that's what actually moved me. I changed the sermon order a little bit, or the passage, because initially I would just had the schedule laid out. I was only going to speak on just the storm, mm. and when I started to look at, it, I'm like, John There's is no not emphasizing right, John, <laughs> and John's not emphasizing yeah. this the way the right. other gospel writers were emphasizing it. Right, and that's what made me look at that storm in a bigger context yep. mm-hmm. um, because you're right. The other ones, that whole thing can preach the whole message as he gets out of the boat, he sees the winds and waves, yeah. he starts sinking and he, re- I mean, that's, that's, that, that, that'll preach, but John doesn't emphasize that. And, right. and here, here's just this heartbeat that, that I get excited about John because in the other g- gospels too, they'll bring up different things about, people having faith. They'll bring mm-hmm. up, uh, so in the feeding right. of the 5,000, it's the boy, and there's this huge heartbeat, mm-hmm. like focus on the boy. So John, he doesn't care about the boy. Mm-hmm. He's pointing at Jesus. There's something about Jesus here. You're right. This whole thing about the storm, he mm-hmm. doesn't care about Peter and his faith. It's not <laughs> about Peter. This is about Jesus. <laughs> and there's something really yeah. cool about that heartbeat that so of John. Good. You're right. So, That's yeah, so good. I don't know. That no, is I so think it good. takes us back to John 20 again, the purpose statement of Jesus. You know, These things have been written that you might believe, believe that Jesus is the Christ. Yeah. And have life in his name. And yeah. have life. He just yeah. keeps pointing to Jesus. Jesus. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah, really good. Awesome. Okay, that's it. It's time to go. <laughs> have an awesome afternoon or evening or I don't know. Okay, Morning. we'll see you later. Morning, <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> Bye. See you.